Just have a special announcement for my listeners. First of all, I want to say thank you so much for uh, listening. Started off as an experiment in August, but I've had about 2,000 listens of my podcast, and I'm so grateful. I have a special request uh, for my year-end episode 2020, which has been an incredibly interesting year. I plan to do an episode of listener feedback. So what I'd love for you to do is leave me a message, and the link is in the show note, about what you took away. What was one thing after listening to several episodes was the most impactful to you to help that helped you in some way, or was an insight you hadn't thought about before? If you can do that, then I will be sharing some of those insights. You can see that link in show notes. Enjoy this episode. Welcome to the Navigating Disruption Podcast. I'm your host, Shaquille Barmel. I'm the CEO of Ocean Blue Strategic and partner with the Summit Group. I'm a coach, consultant, and speaker, and I help leaders, entrepreneurs, and sales professionals make an impact through improved performance. In this podcast, I share insights and interviews with interesting leaders to define practical lessons that you can use to make an impact in the face of uncertainty. Did you hear the one about a Canadian 20-something pest control salesperson who took a backpack full of rubles on a Belarusian subway? No, this is not a riddle. Listen to my interview with Tara Landis to hear the rest of this story. While we both grew up in Vancouver, it took a decision to change our life direction for us to meet at our MBA program at the Ivy Business School. For the past 12 years, Tara has been the president of Bell Rock Benchmarking, a company which she founded. And in this very personal conversation, we share memories and lessons learned about education, careers, mental wellness, and the addictive nature of witnessing the impact of your efforts. Hi, Tara. How are you? I'm great. Nice to see you, Shaquille. Great to see <laughs> been you. a long time. I'm really glad this worked out and I want to thank you because you've been such an enthusiastic supporter of the interviews I've been doing and I'm grateful because you, you never know if it's going to land. So thank you for, for sharing. Well, that. thank you. Thank you for doing it because I have been so thoroughly entertained hearing <laughs> where everybody is and especially people I haven't kept in touch with. So yeah. it's uh, it's been fantastic to, to hear all those voices from the past and yeah. what they've learned along the way. Isn't it remarkable to see how much people have learned like after graduating with their MBA? Yeah, I mean, in retrospect, I don't think we learned all that much in MBA. I think we learned a lot more in the real world, but yeah, but, yeah, but I'm glad to see that it happened for yeah. sure. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I want to start because one of the things that's really interesting to me these days is the role of our memories and our past experiences on what the kind of leaders we've become. So mm -hmm. I, I, I want to start with my first recollection of meeting you. And I bet you... We had just gotten our acceptance letters and we were yep. getting together pre getting on the road and going to London, Ontario in Vancouver. And so you grew up in Vancouver, as did I. Yes. So that's where I remember first meeting you and having a conversation. I think you were one of the first few people I met at that social. Uh, I think it was connected to the uh, uh, Skytrain station or the waterfront uh, station there. And I have a lot of memories of that first experience. And you look exactly the same. <laughs> my memory. So yeah, That's so kind of you to say. And I yeah. remember that too. I remember that really well. And I remember meeting you and Narissa. 
Yeah. Um, because she was there too. Yeah. And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, what have I gotten myself into? Like these people are so impressive. And and I, I'm just like this kid, like <laughs> I'm yeah. in big trouble here. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was all, it was a really great experience. Uh that the whole excitement of not knowing was really yeah. cool. I was looking for that at that time in my life. Yeah. What what was taking you to go do your MBA at, at Ivy? Well. Um, I graduated from my undergraduate with a political science degree okay. with no idea what I wanted to do with my life. Um, I did it because I fell into it because I was interested in learning and uh, grew up listening to CBC radio and all the politics stuff. And frankly, I kind of knew a lot of it already. So it was easy to get good grades. And I was really busy at school, not worrying about education. Yeah. Um, so it was a good path for me at the time. When I graduated undergrad, um, it was really hard to get a job really hard. Mm -hmm. I ended up selling pest control door to door on the downtown east side of Vancouver. Wow. And, and at first I thought I got such a great territory because, you know, lots of ro roaches and rodents, for those of you who aren't familiar with the downtown east side of Vancouver, it's, it's the uh, poorest postal code uh, wow. in yeah. Canada. Yeah. And um, so I thought it was a great territory because there was so much need. It turned out that people also have to have money to pay for things in order for <laughs> you to be successful in sales. Yeah. Um, anyway, I ended up uh, selling computers and computer products uh, through a, a distributor. Um, and I knew that wasn't my future. You know, yeah. I, I, it wasn't, I, I needed a job, but that wasn't yeah. going to be it. So I wrote the LSAT to become a lawyer. And then I found out that um, I met a lawyer for the first time. And uh, after I'd written the LSAT and they said, yeah, well, you're gonna work 80 hours a week for 40 grand a year. And I was like, why would anybody do that? Yeah, I just couldn't understand what the drive was for that. So yeah. MBA it was. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Thank you for the transparency <laughs> and honesty on, on the career path. Um, yeah. But I, I wanna just spend a little bit of time in those first few jobs you had. You, yeah. you couldn't find a job. I think there's a lot of young people that are facing that right now, obviously, given what's been happening this year. Um, you went for a job in sales. Um, what did you learn from that experience that's still with you today? Well, I learned I learned to cold call. Yeah. I mean, I, I learned, first of all, that I don't like it, but second of all, that I can do it. And sometimes, in as my mother says, you know, sometimes work is work. Yeah. Um, you can't do what you love 24 seven. And so yeah. sometimes you just got to do those things and get through them. So that, I think yeah. that was a big lesson. Yeah. Um, uh, my father was pretty connected in Vancouver business yeah. and I had a real chip on my shoulder, not wanting to take advantage of that privilege, um, which it is absolutely privilege. Mm -hmm. Uh, but I learned that, you know, if you've got that privilege, um, maybe sometimes it's okay to lean on it. Right. Um, because maybe you can help someone else in the future or whatever. Cause I just couldn't, I couldn't walk that beat with my steel shanked shoes, yeah. avoiding the needles, uh, for much longer. It was pretty soul crushing work. So, yeah. um, so I, the way I got my, my next job was actually through my, one of my dad's friends. Oh, okay. Um, and it was, uh, it was just, yeah, I was answering telephones that they were doing the first large scale implementation of SAP in North America just to totally date ourselves here. <laughs> and um, my job for three months for, I think it was $14 an hour, was to answer the phone and say, I'm sorry, we can't help you because <laughs> the implementation didn't work. 
And so the targets there were you had to answer 100 calls a day. And that was the goal. And so another thing I learned, I guess, early in my career is I'm not very competitive. Like I don't need to win. Mm -hmm. I just need to do better than the others, but mm -hmm. I don't need to be perfect. And so every day I made sure I answered 110 calls yeah. because the goal was 100. And when it came time to lay off all of us people who had answered the phones because the system was working finally, yeah. um, they kept me because I consistently achieved, you know, overachieved on my goal. Awesome. awesome. Yeah. It's so interesting you say that because one of the things that I noticed when we were at Ivy is, look, there's a lot of type A personalities that go to one of the best business schools to get an MBA, right? And I always felt like a little bit of a misfit at times. Mm -hmm. Um, but how I reconciled it is that I was a type A, but I was just on the low end of type A, close to type B, but still mm -hmm. on type A. <laughs> and what yeah. you've articulated here suggests that maybe we have, a, we have something in common there. I think uh, so. I remember being in my learning team and they're like, why aren't you on the Dean's list? You should be on the Dean's list. I'm yeah. like, yeah, but to get on the Dean's list, you have to work really hard. Yeah. Like that's not really my priority here. <laughs> Okay. So again, talk about privilege, right? Being yeah, at the best school yeah. in the world. And, and my goal is not, you know, the most education I could get. But I was focused on learning other things about people and, you know, being involved in all the clubs and going yeah. on leader and doing all that kind of stuff. It just wasn't, the education was really good and really important. And I learned yeah. things, but it wasn't everything to me. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm glad you brought up leader because I did want to talk about that. It's the 30th anniversary of the leader program this year. Yeah, crazy. Uh, it is amazing. And for listeners that don't know what leader is, I'm going to try to remember it. Well, leading education and development in emerging regions, right? Nice. So yes, that's, that's right. That is the program. But it, basically, a bunch of us, university students, graduate students, were kind of shipped off to the what former was Soviet form Union. Yeah, <laughs> former Soviet yeah. Union to teach business. <laughs> <laughs> To, to yeah. students at universities and technical schools in all these parts of Europe, Eastern Europe. And, uh, mm -hmm. and so what an incredible experience. Where did you go? Um, I went twice. So my first year, I went to Minsk, Belarus, yeah. um, which is like in the news all the time right now, um, because the same guy is still in power. And when I was there, that guy um, had a, you know, quote unquote, election. And there were these people who would come, as you probably remember, and they would sort of, they're like your hosts, they facilitate you. Well, yeah. two, two of our hosts just disappeared at one point and oh, they never came back because they were supporting the other candidate. Oh. And I mean, it was crazy. And I had to, I'll just one quick story about that because yeah. that place is just fascinating. Um, at one point, we had to go buy train tickets to get out of there. We had a heck of a time getting out of there because they were holding on to our passports and used all the bribery and stuff. But we had to go get our train tickets. Well, they were experiencing hyperinflation. The only time I knew about hyperinflation was like, you know, Germany before World War II. Like you'd read these, you know, I study poli sci. Like I, I knew what it was. So the biggest banknote, you couldn't use US currency. You couldn't use any other kind of currency. It was illegal. You couldn't use credit cards. You couldn't, nothing. You had to use Belarusian rubles. Mm -hmm. And the biggest Belarusian ruble note, I believe at the time was, I'm going to get this wrong, but it was either 50,000 or 5,000. Mm -hmm. But whatever it was, it translated to $3. <laughs> 
that was the biggest, the most paper money bill. And so when we went to get the train tickets, I was backpacking after leader. So I had a backpack, a 70 liter backpack that I was going to be using to travel. We filled it with cash. We filled the whole thing with cash and then got on the subway. They have subways there. And I, I was like the shortest person. So they put me in the middle and then all the other students or the other teachers like stood around me on the subway. Yeah. So I wouldn't get robbed. Like, I don't know what they were going to do. If someone came yeah. at us, I was, I was going to give them the backpack, but, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> but they stood around me and I had this thing on my front and then we walked to the train station and started, you know, four hours later, we had procured our tickets with all that money. <laughs> wow. That's a great story. It was I, insane. Yeah. I remember uh, another friend of ours, and I remember his stories. He didn't go back the second year. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, he well his group got attacked with a knifer, a knife, oh, a guy with a knife, wow. and they had to be moved into where we were staying, which, you know, also wasn't safe by any stretch of the imagination. And we had no, we had no cold water, which was unusual. Usually, people didn't have hot hot water. Yeah. But our building, they were doing construction, and so they turned off the cold water. So uh, all we had was boiling hot water all the time yeah, to take showers oh. and stuff. So I, I went, I, I I was in leader the second year. I didn't go the first year. So I okay, went yeah. to- uh, You were with Steve, right? I was with Steve, your husband, yeah. Steve, who you met yeah. at Ivy and you got married. Yeah. And yeah, so he was there and, and we traveled together and what a great experience getting to know him. And the, the what I noticed was really interesting. There was two sites. We were at an, a kind of like an executive MBA site run by a, a mining company. And we were at the kind of an undergraduate. What I found was really interesting was that even though we thought this was great, you know, everybody's free, free market system now, we're there to kind of give them these skills to run a business. Most of the students in my executive MBA class were basically saying, we liked it the old way. Mm. We liked yep. it when we knew where everybody stood Everybody made a certain amount of money. Yes, it wasn't a lot. And yes, it was hard to get things at times, but we kind of knew where we stood. Now we actually don't know. Yeah. Uh, and we're all kind of fending for ourselves. So really opened my eyes that sometimes what we hear see in the, in, the West, in the West as being free market is the best. And that's what we want to get to is not always the best for everybody. <laughs> and, well, yeah. And I would argue we don't have a free market in the West right. either. Um, there again, there's a lot of privilege here, and and the the system is kind of stacked against an awful lot of people. Yeah, um, I know. In my second year, I was in uh, Dnipropetrovsk in Ukraine, yeah. which um, during communism was a closed city, which means the people who lived in the city were not allowed to travel outside of the city at mm -hmm. all, uh, because they made nuclear bombs there, and um, so they had lots of secrets. Mm -hmm. And we were teaching at an agrarian university. And so there were every weekend, they would take us on these trips to like show us around. And one weekend, they took us to this farm that was sort of run as a collective. And there were literally human beings pulling plows in the field wow. because, and they hosted, they hosted you for a meal and they're, you know, everyone's putting their best foot forward. And in the tradition is sort of to have lots of courses and with every course you have a toast. Well, one of the courses was a single tomato for 12 people cut into 12 slices. Wow. And these people, like they had nothing, they had nothing. Um, and they were so generous and welcoming. The next weekend, they took us to a mafia farm where when we drove in, they farmed everything there, fish and grain and, and cows and dairy and like everything. And when we drove in, it was like Chicago in the 20s. Like there were guys with suits and machine guns standing at the gate. 
and um, and we get taken in. And of course, like the state of the art equipment. And they were like, you know, you don't understand how business works. It's funny that they bring you here. If if the if you're not making enough money, you just raise the prices, hmm. and you just don't let other competitors in. Like that's how you do it. And yeah you know, you just get your money from the IMF because they just fund it to you. And then you get the best equipment in the world. We have the most advanced equipment in the world um, because, you know, the world will give us the money for it. You just don't understand business. Yeah. And uh, it was, it was a big lesson that whole yeah. trip. Wow. I, I still draw so much uh, from that experience. Uh, I still talk about it a lot. It was really, really an incredible experience. So your career afterwards, if I remember, you joined uh, MRSI after yeah. graduating. So tell me about that experience. And I'm really interested in that moment that you decided you wanted to launch your own business. <laughs> uh, so yeah, um, as you would recall, in 2000, 1999, the economy was incredibly buoyant. I had lots and lots of first round job interviews. Mm -hmm. uh, I had no idea what I wanted to do when I grew up. I knew I didn't want to do finance, but I, mm -hmm. that's all I knew. And um, in fact, I had so many first rounds that I, st I started like no, no showing. And I mm -hmm. believe it was Narissa, your wife in career mm -hmm. services who said, you know, you can't do that. Like it looks bad on all of us. Yeah. Um, and so I, I got a couple offers, but I, I really did feel that the caliber of talent in our mm. MBA class was so incredible. And I felt a little bit intimidated by going mm -hmm. out into the work world and having to sort of meet that expectation. Mm -hmm. So I took a job with MRSI, which was a small business consulting firm. I knew I didn't want to be in a large organization. I tried that before. And I don't sit well and I don't do the politics that well, ironically, mm -hmm. with my poli sci background. <laughs> um, so I thought, well, I'll go, I'll take this job and it'll be like a paid internship and I can try all sorts of different jobs and I'll figure out what I want to do when I grow up. Um, but what I found out is what I wanted to do when I grew up was exactly what I was doing. My oh, first project was at a cardboard box manufacturer. We were helping them with scheduling and then they shipped me off to California and I was helping a company that bought office uh, furniture for pennies on the dollar through bankruptcy sales and refurbished it and resold it. And every company I went to, the stories there behind the people were just so fascinating. Like I, mm -hmm. I couldn't get over what all these people were going through and coming from. And, and I, I, it's, it's a little bit like a drug. Like when you, when you do that kind of deep implementation work and you help these managers who spend 95% of their time just doing the work, and then the other 5% trying to figure out how to manage off the side of their desk with no foundational systems like budgets and dashboards and job descriptions. Like they didn't have any of these tools. And to me, those tools are so easy. Mm -hmm. And when you put them in place, they just skyrocket. And, mm. and going back a year later, it's a bit like a drug. Like mm. you get a bit addicted to it mm -hmm. and, and seeing those people's success. And so I just loved it. And I just kept doing that um, until, uh, until 2007. So the drug is seeing the impact and yes. seeing growth in individual people. In individual people. Yeah, right. I have to say. I mean, I want the companies to succeed as well. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. Um, but but it's, those, it's those individual people who are really suffering in one way or another. Yeah. And they didn't need to. Yeah. And so there was one company, that the cardboard box manufacturer. I went there like a year later, um, walked in the shipping doors. There were maybe... Uh, 40, 50 guys working on the floor, um, everyone South Asian descent, 
almost nobody spoke English. Mm -hmm. um, and this one guy comes running up to me. Now, like, keep in mind, I'm 27 years old here. Mm -hmm. And he's like, lady, lady. And yeah, and they're all gathered around me, right? But only one of them, I could only speak to one of them. And he's like, lady, are you here to, to fire us all? Are we going out of business? And I'm like, no, I just, I'm just stopping in to see how it's going. Like, what do you mean? And, and he's like, lady, we're going to all get fired. We're not doing anything. You have to help us. And so <laughs> I went into the office and I went into the, see the president just popped in, you know, how's it going? Uh, um, like, is, is there a problem? Like, you know, are you, are you guys down on revenue? He's like, no, we're up 50%. I'm like, why do they think they're all going to get fired? And he just starts laughing and he's like, cause the scheduling works. Like <laughs> they're not running around <laughs> doing all of these like useless things and firefighting. They're just working now. Oh, is that And great. so I learned, I know. And I learned that I'm like, you know, communication is important. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. They don't need to be living in this kind of fear, buddy. <laughs> you know, what's interesting about that story is off. Like, I think a lot about the time we're in now, um, this pandemic period where we're all working from home and we've been focused on really the essentials of what we need to do. It is interesting that it's forced us to kind of put away all those things, that busy work, that running around, that hecticness, um, to focus on what's really important and essential. And it can yeah. be easy to figure out, feel like um, I'm not doing anything. I'm not productive. I'm, I'm, what am I doing having all this spare time? But I think collectively the world is recognizing that, oh my God, we sure needed that, didn't we? Uh, yeah. And it's amazing how much we get caught up in this fast moving cycle. And when you pause and realize that when things are working well, you actually shouldn't be as busy, right? That's right. Yeah. And, so and it's also interesting in this time in small business, there was always a, it's less so now, but there was often a feeling if I can't see them, they're not working. Right. right. And and I think what we've learned, what I, I think what I've known for a while, but what society is starting to learn is that um, you know if people are working by the results they produce. Right. And it doesn't matter if it takes them 20 minutes or six days. Like right. if they can do it faster, let them do it faster. Yeah, yeah. It seems so intuitive, but um, it took us a while to get here, I think, because even yeah. when I was working in corporate, uh, well, actually working for a, a nonprofit organization, we were having this struggle to get the senior leaders to accept the idea of people working from home. Yeah. Uh, I was a little bit more open to because I have I had regional staff anyway, and they were working from home. But then overnight, in the span of three days, everybody works from home and hey, it worked. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's fine. Yeah. And again, and this notion of what kinds of views do we get locked into just because that's just the way it's always been? And what opportunities are there when we take a step back and look at it from a different perspective and a different angle? And you experienced that in consulting with small businesses? Well, even, even in my own consulting practice. So yeah. when I worked for MRSI, we were compensated by, from clients by billable hours. And we talked about results and that results should be there. And they were, but it was it, like there was an incentive to take longer. Hmm. And we had, and we didn't, I don't think we took advantage of that, mm -hmm. but at the same time, the incentive was built in. And I think that's true for many professional services mm -hmm. that the incentives are built wrong. Like it's just, it's backward. And so when I started my own practice, we, we just, it's just a project fee and mm. you know, it's, it, we're going to do this stuff 
and you're going to pay us this much and it'll probably take somewhere between this many months and this many months but don't worry about the efficiency that's our problem yeah um not your problem and just yeah. let us get the get the results for you okay well i'm glad you went into talking about your your current uh, business i remember the last time we saw each other live it was over a stack of pancakes although yes. i don't know if you had pancakes i know i had pancakes yes at, pancake house at, yes new west that's a pancake in new west my old neighborhood and uh, we were talking about your business and you'd been running it for a few years at, by that point. Yep. I was just getting started in my own business at that time. Can you tell me about that kind of moment or moments where you decided that this is what I was going to do? Yeah. So um, 2007, my first child was born. Yeah. Our first child was born. Yeah. Steve, my husband, was in investment banking, working crazy hours, um, required to do a lot of FaceTime. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and I was having a really hard time at home. I had postpartum depression. Okay. Um, I had, um, it was just, it was really hard for me. And we came out to Vancouver to visit my family and we were sitting on Gambier Island in these two specific chairs that are still there. And he looked at me and he's like, we can't, we can't do this in Toronto anymore. Like we have to move here. Yeah. Um, cause he couldn't support me in the way that he wanted. To, I mean, he was supporting us financially, but yeah. I needed time. And so we decided, okay, if one of us can get a job in Vancouver, we'll move. And his company agreed to allow him, I was on that leave, his company agreed to allow him to set up a Vancouver practice. Hmm. And so we moved out to Vancouver, you know, packed up the kid, moved out to Vancouver, and it was 2008. Hmm. And as you can probably imagine, the investment banking right. yeah. wasn't so interested in having this lone satellite office guy. And so there we were both out of work and, uh, and I was sort of lamenting my fate. We were living in my parents' condo with them. Um, it, was, it was supposed to be just a couple of weeks, right? Until we figured yeah. things out. And um, I was lamenting my fate to my old boss and like, you know, God, I'm gonna have to go and get one of those MBA jobs. like. I'm gonna have to work at TELUS or one of the banks or something, which to me, like, I just couldn't imagine. I wasn't, I like the little stuff. I like the quick change. I like the impact and yeah. I just couldn't imagine it. And he said, well, you know, you're a smart girl, go sell a project. If you sell a project, you don't have to take one of those jobs. If you sell two, maybe you'll have a company someday. And, and uh, so I never intended to start a company. I intended to start a job hmm. um, and I had never sold the work before so my old firm was sort of organized like a, a terrorist operation everyone was in cells and they didn't want one person to like the salespeople to know how to do the consulting or the consulting people to know how to do the sales right. um but uh but yeah i uh i eventually went back to my cold calling roots right um <laughs> and uh i got a bunch of trade show lists for companies that were or trade shows that were coming and i use the internet to see who was head office in Vancouver. And for those that were head office in Vancouver, I offered to do basically a, a mystery shopping of their booth. I mm. sort of fibbed a little bit. I was, I said, you know, I'm going to be there anyway, which wasn't true. Mm. I'm going to be there anyway. So if you want, I can do this free of charge. And um, uh, if you'll let me come and present the results to you in person. And so by getting my foot in the door that way, I was able to sell one project and then a couple projects. And now we do everything by referral, but that was how we started out. Incredible. What a great story. And now you've been running this business for how long? Yeah, since 2008. So wow. 12 years. 
12 yeah. years and you've got a, a team of people that work from home. I do. And we've always worked from home. We had an office downtown for a while. We had like a packaged office yeah. and we were there once a week to have a meeting. Um, and sometimes we use it for coaching or if a client didn't want to do it at their office. Yeah. Um, but it's that office has always been on the bubble. Yeah. And, it, you know, like March 16th, I can't, I, I, <laughs> I gave notice. I was like, yeah. okay, just yeah. 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 Now, Tara, I'm going to ask you a question now. If you don't want to answer it, it's okay. We'll cut it out of the interview. Okay. Um, but I want to talk to you a little bit about what you said, your a bit of a depression after your first child was born. Yeah. Uh, I, yeah, I had postpartum depression. We don't, we don't talk about those things very often. I think it's so Well, important. we should. Yeah. So can you tell me a little bit about what, uh, what you were going through and, and how you um, kind of got out of it? Uh, yeah, well, it was really dark. And um, I just, as you know, when you have a child, it changes everything. Like your yeah. world shifts overnight. Yeah. And I'm an only child. And uh, the world was always about me. Mm -hmm. And um, I like to think of myself as a generous person, but at the end of the day, everything was about me. Mm -hmm. And so having a baby really changed everything. Mm -hmm. Like it was, it was a big rake in the face mm -hmm. and, um, and I, I had trouble dealing with that. Mm -hmm. So, and you know, in the hormones and all the rest of it, I, sure. when I was pregnant with my first child, I gained 80 pounds mm -hmm. within two weeks of giving birth. I had lost 90 pounds. Wow. So like there was a lot, I think physically going on with yeah. me as well yeah chemically but um but yeah it was it was it was hard and I think it's hard for a lot of people um yeah. and I think people need to talk about it more because yeah. it's not only me how long did it take you to feel like you were out and there was a new sense of normal I'm hoping next week no <laughs> <laughs> Uh, no, no, no. I, I mean, uh, honestly, once I got back to work, that's when yeah. I started to feel more like myself. Okay. Um, because it was back, I, I really sort of had this feeling that I had to no longer be a person, mm -hmm. that I was now just a mother. Mm -hmm. uh, not that there's anything wrong with that. Mm -hmm. um, but I needed to find some of myself back yeah. and work really helped with that. Tara, thank you for sharing that. I just think that there's so many yeah. people who go through things um, whether it's postpartum or otherwise other mental uh, illnesses and things they're struggling with in the workplace. And we just to make, need to make sure people feel comfortable talking about it. So thank you for, for sharing that. I appreciate yeah. it. Yeah. I don't mind at all. And I, I agree. I, I would say half the people that I talk to these days are suffering from something. Yeah. Yeah. So what are you seeing now um, uh, in the world, in your client's world? Uh, uh, how's, how's business going? Um, business is good. We were down a bit uh, at the start of the pandemic. We had some businesses shut down, some really great companies that I'd worked with for a long time. And it was just so sad. But, you know, if you if you have a, a large rent and you serve the public, um, you can't you can't afford it forever. Yeah. Um, so uh, but now things are back about to normal. We're doing a ton of strategic planning right now with mm -hmm. with companies. We're doing some implementation work, so organizational structure, job descriptions, a lot of work on communication, teaching people how to communicate with wow. their staff, which we've always done, you know, meeting rhythms and things like that. But the the remote nature of things is is um, is causing people to just sort of, you know, they recoiled a bit. They didn't want to say anything because they didn't know what to say. Yeah. And the problem is uh, nature abhors a vacuum. 
and not saying anything, people assume the worst. They're like those guys, right? Oh my gosh, we're going out of business. Yeah, like, right, right, right. <laughs> you know, and and so even if you think the message is bad, um, it's not as bad as they're imagining it to be. Yeah. So we're helping a lot with that kind of stuff. That's very cool. So yeah. you've had a lot of really interesting experiences from the days of cold calling and selling pest control in the downtown <laughs> east side of Vancouver to yep. um, launching your own consulting firm that's been very successful in growing and, and helping uh, businesses survive this time and, uh, and, and flourish. Is there anything that you can take from your experience that you think our listeners would be well served to kind of think about going forward? What's your advice for leaders going forward? Um, I think for leaders going forward, I think one thing, one disservice that the MBA did was the idea of goal setting. And I, I just, let me be clear and explain this. It's important to have a goal. Mm. Uh, it is. But I think it's way more important to have a compass. Mm. And I think that when you know what your purpose is, like, why are you really doing the things that you do? And you know what your values are, which are, you know, these are the rules that I won't break, mm. not the aspirational values. You know, I wish I was hardworking. I do wish I was hardworking, but I'm not. Mm -hmm. um, so what do, what's really important to you? And if you can figure that stuff out, then I think a lot of other things fall into place. Mm -hmm. I think MBA was very focused on, you know, goals. We had like one OB course. And to me, that course was the most impactful of any, mm -hmm. because it, it was all about the people. And I loved that course. And I couldn't understand why everyone was so like annoyed by it. You know, let's get back to the spreadsheets. It's like, but yeah. this is everything. This is this is the whole deal, guys. And yeah. I remember Erskine, who was our professor, saying um, to the class, you know, you can think, you, you know, you got big debts to pay and stuff, and you might think you're going to go and take one of those big paying jobs and just do it for a few years to pay down your debt and then get on with your life. But whatever you do coming out of here, that's going to change you forever. Right. And so whatever you choose that will change you forever and you might still go do those things but you won't be the same person doing them and i thought that was really really obviously i thought it was good advice because i'm still thinking about it 20 years later gosh that is such good advice that is you know there were so many of those little pieces of wisdom that came from some of those professors uh, michael leanders was another one that you know he said to, to us you're going to go out there after finishing your MBA and you're going to go onto some plant floor and start advising people on how they should restructure their business. You don't know an effing thing. Yeah. Right. You need to realize that you need to watch, observe and learn. Don't think that you're some kind of brilliant business genius that can go out there and tell <laughs> people what to do. Uh, and it's very interesting you talked about OB because it's very, very tied to my interview that that I had with Niraj Monga, who mm -hmm. was basically, you know, mathematically, economically, a real bright strategic thinker. He's but a genius. Then, he was genius. But yeah. then he actually even said, I realized the relationships matter. The people yeah. matter. And um, that's really great, really great advice. You're hearing my dog in the background. Yeah, I'm, I'm waiting for mine to chime in too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's part yeah. of work from home. Kara, that was uh, really great to catch up with you. Please yeah, you give too. my best to Steve. And uh, thank you for listening. And hopefully we'll get a few more people. Dominic Atkinson is next uh, on, my, on my list. So we're- Well, and I told- Thank you, Tara. All, right. All the best. Thanks. Take care. Bye. All right, bye-bye.
Well, that was fun. So many interesting insights from that conversation. The first piece of advice that I got from Tara, actually, it was advice from her mom. Work is work. And you can learn something from a job you hate. Tara's experience with cold calling to sell pest control prepared her to start her own business 12 years later. She also said something very interesting <laughs> that I haven't completely wrapped my mind around. She said, I'm not competitive. I don't need to win. I just need to be better than the others. That sounds like winning to me, Tara. But I get the point. She doesn't need to be perfect. And just because there aren't any awards or recognition, you can still try to be the best performer. She also described how leaders need to be transparent in their communications, not to let their teams make up their own version of the facts. If you are running around and being busy all the time, if it's overly hectic, usually that means something is wrong and you need to fix it. She said that goals are important, but having a compass is even more important. I sure agree with that one, Tara. You need purpose and values and you need to stick to them, not break them. And when you do that, everything else falls into place. Thanks for listening. Thank you for tuning in. If you liked this episode, please do rate or leave a review. It'll help others like you find this show. See you next time.